Greetings to all of you. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that are new, I just briefly want to have you understand how I'm about to share this message. I will seek to speak prophetically this message, as it says in 1 Peter 4, chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to speak, allowing God to speak out of us. As Christ said, the words that I speak are spirit and life. And so that is what I will endure to do. And part of what I do to facilitate that is I seek to be led by God each day in the Word of God to discover what particular chapter out of the whole of Scripture he would be leading me to. And so I cast lots on the Scripture where there's an equal chance for any possible chapter in the whole of the Bible. Because I have faith in the sovereignty of God who's omnipresent and whose presence is attached to every particle of existence that he already knows where the lot will fall as it says in Proverbs I believe it is chapter 16 the last verse the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord I'm not going to get into all of that I'm just wanting to explain to you about how I am going to be sharing this message. And so I will be sharing the various passages I received this week. I do not prepare anything. The only preparation is the half hour of meditation that I've done in these chapters that includes the taking of notes. I am trusting the Holy Spirit to speak through me. To me personally, to you personally, and to the corporate body of Christ around the world as to what God, by his Spirit, would be saying at this particular time. I will choose a theme passage. And sometimes there's two passages that are very connected. In this case, there is. But the theme passage will be 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I will also be sharing from Song of Solomon chapter 4. But I just briefly first want to touch on the scriptures I received from February the 6th to February the 11th, which is this last Thursday. Today is already Monday the 15th. Sometimes I don't have the opportunity to share everything in a whole week, but this is most of the week, of the past week. On February the 6th, I received Isaiah 63. And this is about God's anger towards the nation of Israel because they have turned away from him. And there is a particular verse that stands out in this passage, and so I will turn to that now. Um, so we will be turning to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. And 
finding that passage right now. Isaiah chapter 63. In particular, I want to point out verse 17. And it says this, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from our ways and hardened our hearts from thy fear? Return for thy servants' sake the tribes of thine inheritance. So in the dilemma and the adversity of Israel's condition, not only spiritually, but the judgment that was impending, there is the cry. We are in this position because our hearts have been hardened. Why have you hardened our hearts? Well, it is evident that when we choose our own way and we continue to disobey God's ways and choose our own way, there comes a point where God gives us over to our own lusts. And there's another scripture concerning Israel in the wilderness that says this because of their rebellion. Nevertheless, God gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Yes, God will give people their request. If their heart is set on those delusional things of this world that the enemy uses to manipulate them, he will grant them to go through the experience of their own choices, to reap what they have sowed. And so they sow to themselves like the prodigal son and are brought to the place of complete destitution in order to come to the place of facing the reality of their emptiness and their hopelessness. Then they're in a place where they can really find God because they've finally experienced the consequences of their own ways and seen the emptiness of their own self-sufficient ways of independence from God and how ugly it is. This is the case over and over. We have in Isaiah 24, no, not Isaiah 24, pardon me, I believe, um, now I've forgotten the passage. It's probably Isaiah 12, but it's not an issue right now. There in that passage, where Israel is drunken and desensitized with their own ways, God says that he will let it be line upon line, here a little, there a little. In the meditation of the word of God, it had became, become a mere outward ritual where their heart was far from God. And God said he would let that continue with them until they were so hardened that they would fall backwards, be snared, and be taken. Then, once they're there, 
once they are totally cold in their heart, they will see their need of God. That's why it says in Revelations, if you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth speaking to the church. I would rather that you were cold or that you were hot. But to be lukewarm is the worst situation to be in concerning the church of Laodicea, where they were deceived with false teachings, which basically caused them to say in their heart, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And they didn't know that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked in their soul in their present state. And so the reason God hardens people's hearts is because of their choices in the first place. Okay, you want to harden your heart against me? If you continue to harden your heart, I will let you harden your heart to the point where you will totally lose the fear of God and you will find the consequences of your own ways. But in this passage in Isaiah 63, God's anger is described in verses 1 to 6 against the nations, that there will be a day of his vengeance against them for being against the nation of Israel, which is actually the nation's rebellion against Elohim, the Almighty's one. Yes, the nations, the reason the nations are against Israel, even now those nations that hate Israel and that are jealous of Israel and that seek her destruction, is because of the spirit of rebellion that is in them that is actually against God. But in that day of God's vengeance, when he will take it upon the nations and bring their utter destruction, it will also be the year, not only of God's vengeance, but of the redemption of those that are his people. Yes, the nations also are in the valley of decision, and some are hardening themselves more and more. And yes, we do see that as the truth becomes more and more evident, the light shines brighter and brighter. On one, it is hardening the heart like clay that is hardened in the sun. And on the other, it is making a substance that is malleable in God's hands to be molded onto his purpose. I don't want to get into the Isaiah 63. That wasn't, isn't the theme passage. Now we go the next time on Monday to 2 Samuel 15. This is about the rebellion of Absalom against King David, which most of us as believers are very familiar with. The historical account of Absalom's rebellion against King David. King David was very gracious to Absalom to show mercy to him after he did not show mercy to his other son and slew him. Even though he slew him because of his unrighteousness, Absalom, he should have shown mercy. 
But here is King David, and Absalom, in his subtlety, has a plan to totally take over the kingdom. He's only interested in himself. He's not interested in what God's will is because he doesn't have the fear of God. And so David is forced to leave the city as we know. And there's a particular verse that stands out, which is in verse 25, actually two verses, verses 25 to 26 of 2 Samuel. And the king said unto Zadok, carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. What is King David doing here in a situation of injustice? Is he trying to fight in his own sufficiency? No. He has a relationship with God. And he puts it totally into God's hands. As the word of God says, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And that, and here we have a very good example of committing one's way unto the Lord. In the midst of this trial, King David could have believed that if he had the ark of God with him, he would have somehow had God's greater blessing and protection. And also that the people would want to look up to him more because he had that symbol of God's authority in his midst. But no, he doesn't put his trust in some manipulation of having that ark with him as some possibility of making a difference in what looked like a very impossible situation that he would be returned to being king since he was greatly outnumbered militarily by this rebellion. Because he has a relationship with God, he does the opposite. He says, if I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both the ark and his habitation. He puts the situation totally into God's hands so that there's no way that he is trusting in anything but in God. He's not hoping in people having to look up to him because he has the symbol of God's authority with him. He's dying to that and learning to totally put the situation in God's hand and be willing to receive any judgment from God if there's something in him that deserves judgment. And King David had many times where he did this, where he learned to commit his way unto the Lord. And this is a very good example of it. And what happens to people that brings them into a state of rebellion against God is when they try in their own ways to work things out. And at first it may seem as innocent and spiritual as would be possible even. And yet, 
it can lead over time to such deception that one ends up in total rebellion against God. The importance is that we learn always to yield everything in our lives out of our grasp to let go and to let God have his way. And that is what God is showing from these passages of Scripture that will keep us from entering into a place of rebellion and hardness against God. And then on February the 9th, I received Psalm 150. This is a psalm about praise. It's about praising God. It's such a short psalm, I could actually even read it. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Now this word praise in the Hebrew is halal. If you look it up in the Strong's, it means to be clear. Secondly, to shine. Thirdly, to make or show or to boast. And so we go on, and I won't go into all of them. But if you go to the symbolic letters, which go back to 1500 BC and earlier, the first letter is the picture of a man with his hands raised. And that letter means to look, to breathe, to sigh, basically. It has the understanding of awe and of beauty. The next letter, Lamid, is a shepherd's staff that is like a sugar, you know, the, can, the uh, candy canes they use uh, at Christmas or a cane that has a hook in it. It was used to hook the sheep. And it has the understanding of being pulled towards something, to hook something, to yoke something, to, to be under the yoke, to learn to teach. And so the word praise has the understanding of looking to God and seeing how utterly awesome and beautiful God is. And then totally being hooked on your focus that way, bringing yourself in to a total discipline of focus on the awe and the beauty of who God is. King David said this, he said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It says that we are to worship God in what? The beauty of holiness. It is out of holiness that issues beauty. And actually before beauty, what issues out of holiness is wholeness. So you have holiness from which issues wholeness from which issues beauty. 
This is part of what is involved in genuine worship. And genuine worship comes out of the genuine fear of God. They heart, their hearts were hardened so that they couldn't fear God in Isaiah 63. Here we have the contrast in the meaning of the word praise of what is the opposite of the hardening of the heart. It, the key to not having a hardened heart is to choose to genuinely fear God. That is not a choice that is intellectual assent. It is a deep turning of the heart. It is a choice to recognize God for the reality of who he really is from our heart. And often we don't come to be willing to face that reality of who God is until we come to the place like the prodigal son, to the end of our own delusional, deceptive ways that have left us bankrupt and empty in our soul like a sucking black hole in outer space that has caused such destruction not only in our own lives but in all of those around us because our choices have been independent from God and we can never fill that void, that emptiness that was only made to be filled in a relationship of worship with God and a relationship where our whole life is in a state of continual worship. So the fear of God is this choice to recognize the reality of who God really is, that he is an ultimate perfection of love. This is a love that first is so ultimately pure in its integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to love. Love being that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment. Such a quality has no corruption in it because it is innate in God to be a blazing fire of judgment against all that would be contrary to choosing the highest lasting good. Agape love is more than just a feeling. It is a choice to choose the highest lasting good, which ultimately is a choice onto the enlargement of who God is, because he is the ultimate good. It is this first aspect of God's love which can be illustrated in the negative symbol in electricity you have the negative and the positive symbol. You have it in math. And you have it in all things. They are filled with negatives and positives. Everything is held together by negatives and positives in nature. And the negative is a symbol of foundation. That foundation is that there is no corruption in God because his love is so pure it will not tolerate what is contrary to love. That is the foundation from which can spring from the being of God creativity that can ever expand and enlarge because it will never have corruption in it. And that creativity is ultimately manifested in a love that without violating its integrity and required judgment is so creative as to be able 
to provide destiny for all that God creates. By God himself taking judgment upon himself, God has the moral capacity within his being that is not just a capacity but a reality. To humble himself more than you, the mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature, and totally take the judgment that you deserve upon himself and absorb it, and still be God, still be without corruption in the integrity of his love. And so the plus symbol, which is a symbol coming out of the foundational symbol, which also is a symbol, the foundational symbol is also a symbol of cutting off all corruption. But the plus symbol is a symbol of something that is so ultimately positive. And that is that God's love is so great in its moral capacity that it is ultimate in its power to provide forgiveness without violating the integrity of God's love, which is his holiness, the defensive aspect of his love. And when we choose to fear God, we are first recognizing the holiness of God, this integrity of love that will not tolerate corruption. Only that quality could possibly contain unlimited power in life without dissipating it and without being corrupted by it. Many people are in rebellion against God. They are offended at the holiness of God. They have received a distorted image of what they consider the holiness of God. They perceive God as being morally very pure, but very demanding and dictatorial. And that it depends upon them to meet the standards that this God is demanding. This is because of a teaching that they've received from their parents or from their own conclusions due to rebellion against wanting to recognize the integrity of God's love and how beautiful and how whole it is because when you do not have corruption you have wholeness instead of a black sucking hole that makes decisions that are destructive out of that emptiness that it is grasping to fulfill that can only be filled by the Spirit of God. So you come to the place where if you see the consequences of God's holiness, which requires judgment, that is the consequences of the integrity of his love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love. So you see suffering all around you and you're suffering in your own life and you become offended at the consequences you are seeing around you. And you have lost sight 
of the utter awesomeness and beauty of the holiness of God, that it is out of the holiness of God that comes wholeness and comes beauty. Yes, there is consequences to rebelling against God, and it has resulted in the curse, and that was what happened with Cain, and I'm not here to get into all details of this. What I'm trying to point out here is what is involved, what is going on in the heart that the mind might not even fully perceive if it does it all. But what is happening in the heart to bring the genuine fear of God is coming to the place of no longer being offended at the terrible consequences in one's life and trying to work out a way of delivering ourselves from it, but coming to the place of recognizing the utter awesomeness of who God is in his holiness that requires judgment. And when that happens, we are choosing to fear God. And when we really recognize the holiness of God as being ultimately good, it should cause us to be convicted of our own undoneness apart from God. But it should also, in that awareness, make us aware that because God is holy, he is ultimately good. And if we recognize that God is ultimately good, it would cause us to be drawn to the conclusion that he must be so ultimately good that he is able, without violating the integrity of his love, to provide a way of mercy and of forgiveness. And so there is in the recognition, the right recognition of the holiness of God, there springs forth a recognition of the greatness of God's mercy, that he has provided a way of forgiveness. And this is the message that has been preached from the very beginning of time, that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness, and that it is only within God that there is the power to forgive. Because he is able to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. That it is a reality within his being to have that ultimate moral expression of love that is continual and a reality. In fact, it says in the book of Revelations that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the world was created, it was already a reality in God. Jesus Christ is just the full expression of the Father who is the originator, the one that sees the end from the beginning into the time and space realm. The word son basically means that. So in the fear of God, there is the recognition of the negative and the ultimate positive, which is this love that can show mercy to us. When we recognize that, we see how great God's love is towards us. And we cry out and we say, like Christ pointed out of the publican, that he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he smote his breast. And Christ said, that man went down justified before God to his home. But the Pharisees were not justified because they were glorying in their own righteousness, saying, I thank God I fast more than, I fast three times a week, I give my tithes, I thank God I'm better than these people. 
They were totally trusting and deceived in their own righteousness. And yet, had, and that is an evidence that one has not entered in to the full genuine fear of God, as that there would be such a level of self-righteousness. When the law was given and the Ten Commandments were given, it was God's intent. Not that they would make the Ten Commandments an idol, that they would worship via their own deception of self-sufficiency in themselves that would transcend the reciprocation of who God is in his holiness and in his love manifested in mercy and grace. That's another topic. What causes people to be genuinely born again of the Spirit is when they come to the place where there's a deep turning in their heart that chooses the genuine fear of God. That is why Peter the Apostle said that he perceived when he saw the Corinthians speaking in tongues, he perceived that God accepts every man, whatever nation they're from, that fears him. Because in the genuine fear of God, one is brought into acceptance before God because they do come to the place of genuine circumcision in their heart where they are born again of the Spirit. So in praise, there is a recognition of the utter awesomeness of God by the first letter, which is the letter Hay, which is the symbol of a man with his hands raised, which means to sigh, to look, to breathe. It has the understanding of awe and of greatness and of beauty. And of us learning to focus that and we do that through praise. We pull ourselves in. The word means shine. When those two letters are put together, it means shine. It means to look. We shine when we open our mouth loud and praise, but we're doing it out of what we're seeing in our heart. We're not just opening our mouth and shouting praises to God. It's out of the awareness of who God is and the beauty of his holiness and in the greatness of his mercy and grace. That is why the angel in Revelations 18, there's an angel in the last days that will preach the everlasting gospel. And it says that this, concerning this angel, and another angel flew in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach saying, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And it goes on. We are out of the fear of God brought to the place of genuine worship. That is what brings us to the place of genuine humility where the hardness in our heart is broken. And that happens through learning to focus on who God is in these two aspects of his love, the integrity of his love and the transcendence of his love out of that integrity in mercy and grace. Now we, so we recognize that. Now we want to go to Song of Solomon chapter four and I could really preach and I will be preaching from Song of Solomon chapter four and but before I do that and get into that, I'm going to go also to uh, 
the other one, there's not much I said on Hosea 8 that I received on February the 11th. All I said here, it's Deuteronomy 4, we are to keep our soul diligently and to take heed to ourselves lest the things God has shown us depart. But then on February the 12th, I received 2 Corinthians 7, and I would really like to read this passage and make it the theme of this message. First of all, though, I want to go to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. I want to say this, that what God is emphasizing and saying to his people this particular period of time is that he wants us to come into a relationship of pure love for him. A relationship of holiness where our lives, we are walking in purity. We are walking in holiness out of the genuine fear of God. And so in these two passages particularly, we will see that is emphasized. I just need to take a drink of water. So I'm going to um, go to Song of Solomon chapter 4 and I'm going to share a little bit more on this particular chapter. I'm turning now to Song of Solomon chapter 4 briefly for a moment here to find it. There it is. Song of Solomon chapter 4. It says, beginning in verse 1, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. And it goes on in these first six verses and describes the beauty of what the bridegroom is seeing, or pardon me, the bride is seeing in the bridegroom. And it says in verse 5, Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies, until the daybreak and the shadows flee away. I will get me to the mountain of myrrh, and to the hill of frankincense. Thou art all fair, my love, no spot in thee. Do you see the theme that is coming forth here? I was talking about the holiness of God and how we should be in such awe of the holiness of God and delight in the holiness of God. In fact, there are verses that can be pointed out in the Psalms where, it com where that very thing is expressed, that King David is delighting in the holiness of God. So the bride is falling in love with the bridegroom and expresses her attraction to his purity and beauty and says, until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh until the hill of frankincense. Right now there's darkness in the world. But I am not going to allow that darkness to influence me. 
I'm going to get into a deep love relationship of who God is and the beauty of his holiness. Thou art all fair, my love. No spot is in thee. God is calling us as his people to get into the secret place and begin to delight in him. Be still and know that I am God. That requires quality time. Ceasing from our own tendencies to be self-initiating ourselves in the presence of God in prayer. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. It says before that, Be not hasty or presumptuous to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. When we come into the place of learning to wait on God, we are coming into the place where our own presumptuous utterances before God cease. And we come to a place of total honesty. And when you come to the place of total honesty, you cannot help but come to the place of complete humility. And when you come to the place of complete humility, you cannot help but come to the place of total honesty before whose presence you are in. And that is what brings reciprocation, reciprocative fellowship with God is when we delight in the Lord. Last week I spoke and emphasized quite a bit upon delighting in God and what the meaning of that word was in the symbol letters. It has a very wonderful and deep meaning. But it is basically the same. It is coming into the place of such awareness of the glory of whose we are before that our heart opens wide. We don't hide anything. We repent at anything that might be exposed while opening our heart. We don't hide our heart from God. But we learn to love the beauty that comes out of such pure ultimately pure love that will not tolerate sin. The beauty and the wholeness. And we recognize the greatness of his mercy towards us. How could we not want to be on our faces before God like the angels? Like the cherubims and say, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. It's not boring to repeat over and over like those cherubims. Holy, holy, holy. When you're seeing such reality in those utterances that is so creative and ever enlarging, you are looking at the beauty of the very source of creation, the very source of beauty and thus the ultimate beauty is God. When we go to the next verse, verse 8, we read, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinor and Hermon, 
from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Well, I'm getting into verse 9 now. I just want to leave it at verse 8 here. And I want to say this. The bridegroom calls the bride that has come to the place of purity. Why do I say that? Because the word Lebanon, Lebanon means whiteness. He's saying, come with me from Lebanon. Come with me from the place of purity. When we get to the place where we are living a holy life, God will call us into an intimate relationship with him. Come with me from whiteness. My spouse, my bridegroom, with me from Lebanon, from whiteness, look from the top of a manna. In other words, God is calling us to come into a place a fellowship with him where we are seated with him in heavenly places, not just in some theological mindset. Oh, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. No, where we experience worshiping God and ascending into the holy place with him, into his very presence and glory. We come with him in to the heavenly places. Yes, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But it requires ascending into the mountain of his holiness. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, who hasn't sworn deceitfully or taken usury from others. It is those that enter into the place of purity and holiness in their relationship with God that will ascend into the place of intimacy in heavenly places and the place of authority with the Almighty. And where do you come to? You come to the top of a manna. What does a manna mean? It is the place of constancy and settled provision. So now we are in a place with God of such fellowship that we are at peace, that he is our provider even when we have nothing. We can sing with Paul the Apostle in the prison and experience the presence of God shake the prison doors open because we are aware that we are at peace and at rest in the midst of the storm. We can be constant in the storm. We do not waver and panic when things go wrong because it doesn't matter even if we are martyred. We will be with him and we will know him even in the process of experiencing pain, pain unto death. He says that he will never leave us or forsake us. And he says, he that believes in me shall never die. Though his physical body may die, he will always be alive. All that you're shedding is the physical shell temporarily. So let us be in that place where we will know that assurance of relationship with him, which is at the top of a manna, meaning the place of constancy and settled provision. From the top of Shinor. Shinor. Next she is brought to Shinor, the place of bearing the torch of light 
to shine forth against all darkness. So now the light of God is shining in us with authority so that we are not fearful to shine that light brightly into the darkness. It is the place that exposes and manifests evil so that evil cannot stand in our presence. It comes under judgment. Whatsoever is of light makes manifest the darkness, it says in Ephesians. And we are called to awake. Awake thou that sleepest. Arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light. When we arise from the deadness and the emptiness of this world, and all the things that we've been trying to work out in our own strength. And we come into the place where we die to those things. We come into the place of purity where there can be a light in us of his glory that brings and manifests forth his authority that pushes back the darkness. And next place we come to in heavenly places in Christ is Hermon. And what does Hermon mean? Herman is the place of being devoted and willingly bound. It is the place of devotion to the bridegroom. In other words, as it says concerning the slaves, if they love their master, they can make a covenant and say, I love my master, I love my Lord, I will not go free. Paul the Apostle said he was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Not because of obligation, but far more because of persuasion. Moral persuasion in his relationship with God. And so when we are in the place of these three things, the place of a faith that is settled in the provision of God and constant. A place where we unashamedly have the authority to bear the light of God in the midst of darkness. And a place where there is a devotion and an addiction to being in love with God that allows us to receive the ring of marriage, yes, even the marriage supper of the Lamb, the seal of God upon our foreheads because we mourn at what God mourns for. We weep over what God weeps over and we rejoice over what God rejoices over because we've entered into such a reciprocative, growing relationship of fellowship with God out of the fear of God. This is the place of authority. Notice in this passage it says that when you're on the top of these mountains, it is from the lion's den. The lion's dens do not cause us to be afraid because they are the power and the authority of God. We can be in the place where God is as a powerful lion and we can be without fear, without cringing because we know the place of his authority that causes us to utter forth the voice of God as a lion and cast down the strongholds of the enemy. So let us, brothers and sisters, be encouraged to delight in purity, to delight in a pure relationship with God, to delight in living a holy life, 
that we may cast off all deception of darkness and not be taken by the darkness of the night that is encroaching upon the world. But remember that scripture in Isaiah 60 that says, Gross darkness shall cover the peoples, but the glory of the Lord shall arise upon you. And he will arise upon his bride, individually upon you and upon those that come together corporately to allow the full headship of Christ to inhabit the body of Christ instead of the hierarchies of man's ways to limit the ways of God in the midst of the assembly of the saints. The bridegroom, as we go on, we read verse 9. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. The bridegroom then delights in the bride greatly because of the beauty of the gaze of her heart on him. God begins to delight in his brothers and sisters when we gaze upon him with a love that is without deception in our heart and is open to his counsel and his will for our lives personally, that is willing to pay any price to put God first. We don't allow ourselves to be taken up with all the cares of this life to make money. We trust him for our provision. And we sacrifice a better paying job or whatever we must sacrifice to be in the place of putting the kingdom of God first so that we would know such a reciprocative love relationship with God that God would greatly pour out his love upon us and shed his love into our heart because he is coming to a place of full delight in who we are becoming before him. So we go on to read. The next verse is, How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse? How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices? Thy lips, O oh, my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honeycomb, honey, and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices. The bridegroom he sees in her a garden and a fountain that has not yet been released to enjoy, but is sealed for an appointed time. And that appointed time is the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. It says, blessed is he that is called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, I believe I should turn to that passage of Scripture in Revelations chapter 19 and read that passage of scripture about being blessed to be called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says this beginning in verse 7. This is a multitude shouting this and, it, and this multitude is shouting, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, 
for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And then he falls at his feet to worship before the angel, and I won't go on. The marriage supper of the Lamb. There's nothing more wonderful than that. And so I want to go back to the Song of Solomon now, to this wonderful passage of Scripture, and continue with this. He is seeing this appointed time. And it is also says, Blessed are they that have part in the first resurrection, for in such the second death has no power to cause loss. Now, we don't know if it means other, other than that even more, but we'll leave that for now. We go on to verses 15 to 16 in the Song of Solomon, and it says, A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, and eat his pleasant fruits. Here is the visitation of God. Where the Spirit of God comes into the corporate bride in its fullness. And we as local assemblies need to come into the place where we are ready for the full headship of Christ to come in to his assemblies, his local gatherings, and fully inhabit those local gatherings with the glory of his presence. The time soon comes when the wind of the Holy Spirit of Elohim releases the garden of spices in the bride, and then the bridegroom comes down, and there is this marriage supper of the Lamb. I am writing a book, which is basically a long outline in every detail of what should be in a church. For it to be open to the full counsel of God and not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ coming into it, down to suggested times for meetings and the kind of meetings there should be. Even the communion, how it should be done in the most fullest expression of love and reverence to God. Every detail is in that book. And I'm soon finishing it. And I'm praying it would be a template for not only planning churches, but for denominations to repent and come into the new order that is not under the order of man, but under the fullness of the headship of Jesus Christ. So that he can fully inhabit his body. And the spirit of control is broken of man's ways when the Spirit of God begins to blow in the body of Christ because they have come to a place where they are no longer allowing the spirit of control that limits God 
and forming hierarchies that limit God, but submitting to the ways of God under his government and headship. There will come the visitation of the Almighty's one in such glory and such love that we will truly experience the marriage supper of the Lamb in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't know how long I've been preaching, but I will. I wanted 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to be my theme chapter, but I will touch on it, obviously, for time. And I will certainly read all the notes I made on it. Because this is a more practical thing that is giving the same very message that I'm bringing out through these passages of Scripture that God has given this week. So we will now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we read, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you see how what I've already been sharing about the fear of God is clearly revealed in this verse? How do we cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of our flesh and our spirit? So that we are not worshiping in our own ways, in presumption before God. But out of a pure heart, we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Not only when we actually worship, but in every action of our lives, out of a pure motive of worship. It comes out of the fear of God because it is out of the fear of God that holiness or purity is perfected in our lives. And that is out of the recognition of God and his holiness that is not just a recognition of the heart, but a reciprocation of the heart that brings humility and awe and stillness and knowing whose presence we are in. The beauty and the glory of the love of God and his integrity and love that will not tolerate sin. That brings us into a place where the things that are in our lives will fall off. How do we mortify the deeds of the flesh? It is through the Spirit. It is through worshiping God in spirit and in truth, which is a reciprocation of the very being of God's love in its integrity that is also transcendent in mercy and grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. He gives enablement and favor to do those things that are out of life instead of out of death, that result in purpose and fulfillment unto the glory of God. Paul the Apostle is saying in these first four, four verses the following. Verse 2, receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. He's saying we live a pure life. We're not people with wrong motives. 
So he was being rejected by them in some measure because he's wanting to be received by them. So he says, receive us because they were believing the lies of the enemy. And the reason they were susceptible to a measure of deception and lies because they had not repented as is described later on in this chapter. And Paul is not someone that's laying a heavy on them. He doesn't say, oh, you people, you need to repent. There's grace. There's tears in his heart. He says, I speak not this to condemn you. For I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with Christ. He is describing a relationship that he has with these people of such love that it's in his heart to die for them and to live with them through whatever struggles they're going through. He wants them to know and he's expressing to them his genuine love to them in his desire to reprove them. A true prophet doesn't go around condemning people, saying, you must repent, you must repent, without having the tears of God's love and humility before those people. Paul said, I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling before you all, that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And so Paul, because he has such a pure love, how do we get a love that is so great and pure as Paul the Apostle experienced? When we have a life that is pure before God, when we enter into holiness, to living a life of holiness, as the Word of God says in 1 John, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Paul had great boldness and authority in his speech. He says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. And you might add that tribulation was for them. He was willing to suffer for them, that Christ might be formed in them. When we have a pure love of God, there is a boldness and authority in us that is not of ourselves, that people will recognize. As it says concerning Christ, where did this man get such authority, for they recognized that he spoke with power, the power of the Spirit of God. Paul commanded the church at Corinth to receive them because they lived a pure life, that it corrupted no one, wronged no one, defrauded no one. As Paul, we should have such a love for one another in the body of Christ locally and beyond that we can truly say that it is in our hearts to die and to live with you. As Paul, we can experience great joy in our tribulation when we know it is for God's purpose and glory to be brought forth through our lives and especially towards those we are related to in the body of Christ locally and beyond. 
Our speech is bold with authority towards the body of Christ because our love is very pure and thereby very strong towards the body of Christ out of love for Elohim. Now I only have verses 5 to 11 that I want to share on in this chapter, not more. And so we read, For when we were come into Macedonia, verse 5, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. See the for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Those that truly love fellow believers are willing and will speak the truth that may bring rejection and sorrow to believers, but will result in genuine repentance. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Counterfeit love is all lovey-dovey, but is a conformity to one another that causes the loss of individuality because it is not willing to pay the price of genuine love that does not compromise truth. It is the same in a relationship that is genuine with God. The false gospel preaches grace without repentance. It is a perception of God that violates the integrity of his love, that ignores the integrity of God's love that requires judgment. that distorts the image of God that he will forgive and tolerate sin. Oh, you say, well, you know, it says that if any man come to me, I will in no wise cast him out. But you're not coming to him if you don't repent. Coming to God involves coming to him with an open heart that does not hide sin, but brings it to him in repentance and desire to be in a right relationship with God. We cannot have fellowship with God if we are not walking in the light. It says in the word of God, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Our garments are not made spotless 
without repentance on an ongoing basis as God reveals those things that are not of him in our lives. That is how we continue in fellowship with God and with one another. When we refuse to justify sin, there's no scriptures that say that God will cleanse us from our sins if we refuse to confess our sins and acknowledge them before him. That would be a false gospel. To preach that God would receive us and we can live in our sin. Oh, we may have the experience like King David where we fail God and we sin and we may be ignoring it for a season but when we are we are under terrible conviction and we're not at peace and we're not in the light until we do repent so we want to be always in fellowship with God and with one another lest we become reprobate we are to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith or not as I shared last week Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. It causes us to hate all that is contrary to the love of God with indignation and with genuine fear, carefulness, vehement desire, zeal, and revenge against sin and evil. It says, Thou hast hated sin and love righteousness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Likewise, when we are conformed to reciprocating who God is, and thus conform to his image out of the fear of God, we will come to a place where we hate what God hates and we love what God loves. And that being brings the frown on our forehead and the smile on our forehead, which is the seal of God, that God will put on those that have truly become virgins in the body of Christ to him to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb and in the first resurrection. Brothers and sisters, may we always learn that genuine love speaks the truth to one another, but it always manifests grace. It always manifests humility and tears. True prophets wept over the sad state of the nation of Israel in its sin. They, Jeremiah, wept, and true apostles and prophets have humility before the body of Christ to weep and to plead with the people of God, not to beat the sheep and to hurt them, but to love them, but to speak the truth with boldness and power and authority as well. Paul said himself, when I come, will I come to you with a rod? He knew the authority of God, but with it was coupled great humility and passion and zeal and love with many tears for the body of Christ. May we likewise be the same to one another, and may we come together in these last days to dare down the walls of division and hierarchy, to allow the full headship of Christ to inhabit the body, to allow his house to become that house of prayer that will cast down the counterfeit house of prayer that is calling people to prayer, not to the one true God, but to the a nature that is in conformity to Satan and is the false God. May we be that temple that breaks forth in all the earth 
as the word of God says, as truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Thank you for listening to this message. I look forward to continuing to show forth the praises of God in ministering to you. Until we meet again.